Welcome back to Calvary Life, a podcast for the members of Calvary Baptist Church and anyone else interested in local church life. I'm Charles Uptain, the executive pastor here at Calvary, and today we're going to offer you something a little different on the podcast. Uh, we've been encouraging you to try an open class or two uh, as part of our Sunday morning and Wednesday night class structure for the last six months. And so today, uh, I want to give you a taste of what one of those open classes feels like and the teaching that goes on there. And so today we're going to listen to a portion of Pastor Paul's uh, teaching on God's providence. This is part of our systematic theology open class. And so I hope you'll uh, be able to tune in and just hear uh, how he teaches this. And uh, maybe it'll whet your appetite to come join us in an open class. Let's start with this verse, because I'm going to come back to it again and again. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Think about that. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That statement, from Him, through Him, to Him are all things. That's a statement of God's providence. Things that begin with God, things that are sustained and carried out by God, things for the purposes that God ordains them. All things by God. We'll come back to that verse again. So let's start here with part one in your notes. What is sovereignty? So when we talk about sovereignty, what is sovereignty? Let me begin just with, with a definition, a starting point of a definition. When we talk about sovereignty, sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that He chooses to do. God's right and His power. Here's the picture. God is the eternal king. He's the king of all kings. As the king of all kings, by virtue of his position, he has the authority over everyone and everything. Everyone is under his authority. God has dominion over all things. So as king, he has the, the right to do whatever he wants. But we know that unlike a human king who exerts his authority dependent upon the powers of others, God has absolute power. So it's not only that God has the right to do whatever He wants as king, but because He is God, He has the ability to do whatever He wants. And no one can thwart Him. No one can stand in His way. He has the absolute power. He has the absolute right. Consider some of these verses. I'm going to hit them quickly. I listed them for you. Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens... He does all that He pleases. Job 23, 13. God is unchangeable, and who can turn Him back? What He desires, that He does. So notice that in those definitions, or in those verses, and when I talk about sovereignty, we talk about right and power. We don't talk about, that definition of sovereignty doesn't talk about any of the other attributes. But it's good for us to know as Christians that God does not simply have the right because it's all His. He made it. He's a creator. He's the ruler of it all. And because He's infinite in His power, He's omnipotent. He has the power over it all. We know there's more to the character of God than those things. What God does in this world is also based on who God is. And God is not only infinitely powerful, God is infinitely good. God is infinitely wise. All of God's ways are perfect. So when we think about how God exerts His sovereignty in the world... God does it in goodness and wisdom. So in other words, He's doing what is best. He's doing what is right. He's doing what is morally upright and good at all times. And so we start thinking about how God applies His sovereignty. 
um, that no one can stop him, we have to begin to shift to make the concept of sovereignty not just this philosophical one. Here's an all-powerful being who has authority over everything to a decidedly Christian one. What do we believe about this God? Um, Let me just throw this in. This one's for free. The God of the Bible, revealed as Jehovah, Yahweh of the Bible, is not the same God of Islam. These are not the same gods. Not historically were they considered the same gods. And even though we use similar terminologies, people say, well, Allah is the Arabic word for God. Yes, technically so. But it's not the same definition of God. They do not possess the same characteristics. They do not possess the same attributes. They do not act in the same sort of way. Um, it could be like saying, hey, do you guys know Larry? So yeah, I know Larry. He's my uncle. Yeah, what's Larry look like? Well, you know, he's this tall, uh, slender fellow. How old is he? He's about 24. Now, we're talking about two different Larrys here, okay? You've got a Larry, i got a Larry. But these are different Larrys. This is not the same God. We know who God is besides Scripture. So we take what we know about God's sovereignty in terms of power and authority, and we balance it with wisdom, justice, righteousness, grace, love, mercy, all those attributes. And that brings us to the term we get from sovereignty, which is more philosophical. I think the sort of sovereignty is this overarching one. God does whatever He will in the world. But we bring it down to this word. This is where I want to spend some time on tonight, providence. And providence answers the question, how does God exert His sovereignty in our world? How does God do what He wills to do? How does God accomplish His purposes? How does He do this in this world? So think of providence in this term. And I, there's no blank for you to fill in. Providence is wise and useful sovereignty. It's wise and useful, or maybe a better word, put above useful, purposeful. Wise and purposeful sovereignty. In other words, God does not work randomly. God does not work in coincidence or happenstance. God does not work on a whim. God does not work at our direction. We don't command Him, direct Him, speak His actions. God is working towards the fulfillment of His plans and purposes. Everything He does is good. Everything He does is intentional with purpose. And So this is providence. Let me give you a few examples in Scripture. Isaiah 46.10 My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will. 2 Kings 19.25 Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. That's purposeful sovereignty. What I intended to do, what I said I would do, this is what I'm doing. And this is skipping way ahead to the conclusion, some of the implications of this for us. But when you and I read the promises of God in Scripture, this is the same operative principle that we have. The God who said He would do it will do it as He always has done. He will carry out His purposes. So like, um, for instance, tonight, if you're in the women's Bible study, they're in Romans chapter 8. And of course, we know Romans 8.28 and the promise of God that, that gives us ultimate hope that God ultimately will bring about everything for the good of those who love Him. But in Romans chapter 8, we have these passages of hope like resurrection, that one day we will be bodily raised. It's not just our spirits out there somewhere. We will be bodily raised. Jesus is the first fruits of that. He's the precursor, the firstborn from the dead, the Bible says. So biblically, what we saw happen to Jesus in resurrection is our future promise as well. Jesus physically died, He was put in a a tomb, and His body came out of the tomb. And 
I believe when we see Jesus, we'll see Jesus in that body, that resurrected body, not in some disembodied spiritual form. We'll see Jesus. When He returns, we'll see Jesus. In the same sense, you and I will be resurrected from the grave. Now, there are questions we can't answer from that. Like, I don't know, I don't know what age you're going to be resurrected at. You know, a child lost in the womb. We do, you know, I don't think we'll see that child as pre-born three months or an infant lost or maybe my grandmother who died at 102 um, in, in not so great condition all around by that age. God will give us a body, but it will be your body resurrected for eternal life. And so these are all promises that we have. That's a way detour, but it's all based on what we know God has done. I plan from days old what I'll bring to pass. Ephesians 1.11, one of our favorite verses. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, why are you confident that when you lay your head on the pillow tonight, that you're secure in the hands of God, why will you go to bed a believer and wake up a believer? He would say, because of this. God will carry out His purposes in me just as He's promised. Our salvation is in His hands. Um, in his book, Providence, Piper defines providence this way. Let me just read you a definition, a short excerpt. The providence of God is His purposeful sovereignty by which He will be completely successful in the achievement of His ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries His plans into action, guides all things toward His ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. We can count on it to happen. Let me give you a, a super fast, kind of 30,000-foot view of providence and a story that you're probably all very familiar with. It's the story of Joseph. This is a great Old Testament example of God's providential hand at work. Um, so again, as you consider this, this case study, let me read you a few verses here, just plucked from the storyline in Genesis. This is Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. You sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Let's analyze that for a minute, okay? All right, so you're those, those brothers with varying levels of, of a sense of guilt and responsibility for what took place to your, with your brother. Um, bearing that sense of guilt and responsibility. Now, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers at the end of the story and says, I'm here because God sent me here. So as we read that, should we read that and interpret, now they are absolved of all responsibility because they were not free agents in their actions towards Joseph. They're not guilty. God did that, not them. They didn't hate their brother and want him dead. Their jealousy of their brother was not their fault. God intended it. Them selling, pretending that he was dead to their father and selling him is not their fault, right? God intended. No, that's not what that passage teaches. What that passage teaches is your purposes that you imagined, the things that you intended to do, are always secondary to my purposes. And though you do this, my purposes will stand. So you and I could do what you know, we used to do in, in seminary classes afterwards. We'd sit there and debate, well, so what if, what if one of the brothers had prevailed over all the others and talked them out of it? I said, no, no, we can't do that. Uh, no, no, we got to fix this. All right, may, you know, Simeon, grab Joseph, take him home, get him away from these knuckleheads. Does that mean that all of Egypt would have been lost to, to uh, um, famine and, and disaster? Does that mean Israel would have been? No, God's going to accomplish His purpose of saving His people. 
But the point is, God is working a plan. Um, maybe we say it simply, you know, we're playing checkers and God is playing chess. We're in the short view, God is playing the long view. But the idea of God's providence in all of this. So look what happens next. Chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. So that answers the rhetorical question I asked. You did mean evil. Did they sin against Joseph? Did they sin against their father Jacob? Did they sin against God and what they did? Absolutely. Did they suffer consequences for it? Absolutely. There's a reason why Reuben is not the preeminent brother anymore, and Simeon is not the preeminent brother anymore. There's a reason why the line of the Messiah doesn't come through Reuben or Simeon. Who's it come through? Judah. There's a reason there are consequences through all of this. And he says, you meant it for evil in order, but you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. There's a comfort in knowing that God has the sovereign right and the sovereign power, and because He's good and wise and perfect and just and merciful, that God has the ability to supersede even evil men's actions for good. That's the sort of God that we serve. God's not operative only in good men's actions, obedient actions, faithful actions, right, righteous actions. God is active in all actions. Um, Joseph's brothers were totally responsible for the evil they committed. They meant it for evil, yet God meant it for good. And again, remember Joseph's words. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God all along had a bigger plan, something infinitely larger, something they could not see, something they could not possibly fathom, and that God was going to do something ultimately saving uh, through that work. That's just one example, but maybe the most glaring that we see in the Old Testament. So let me, any questions on that with Joseph? Joseph was partially responsible. Joseph was kind of a punk of a brother and kind of a jerk to his brothers. His brothers were certainly responsible for what they did, and they faced judgment consequence afterward. But God was still exacting a plan and a purpose even through that. So even through Joseph selling into slavery, Joseph's imprisonment, Joseph's false accusations in Potiphar's house, et cetera, et cetera, God's hand was still there, and God was using him for, for deliverance. All right, number two, let's, let's look at three particular expressions of sovereignty expressed as providence. Now, now what I'm giving you um, in this, this is kind of, this is classic theology. It's classic systematic theology. And these are the three categories. So think of this as, this doesn't answer every question you've got about how does God work and how do people work and how do those two things coincide and where does evil come from and all that, but it'll help you have the right categories. And so these are three classic theological categories, the prophets, three words, preservation, concurrence, and government. Preservation, concurrence, and government. Um, I'm going to come back to those after I read this passage. If you have your Bible in front of you, because I didn't put it all in your notes, um, just for paper, go to Psalm 104 for a second. Psalm 104. And I'm going to give you an example of how all these three aspects of His sovereignty, God's rule and reign over all things, His power and right to do so, shows up in providence, God's hand in it. We say the providential hand of God. This is God's hand in those things. So I'm going to start at the beginning of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. 
Now again, let me pause for a second. He's not giving a technical description of creation and the origins of life. He's giving a poetic, worshipful expression of the power and authority of God in figurative terms. Look what you've done with this world. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place you appointed to them. You set a boundary that they may not pass or they may not again cover the earth. What's he describing? Creation. Why are there seas? Why, are there, why is there land? Why is there sky? Why is there earth? All these things. God, you did this. You determined the boundaries and the parameters of it all. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among branches. From your lofty abodes, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon he planted. You get the sense of what I'm talking about here? Where, where do we just shift from? We shift from God, you made all this. You set it up to function exactly as it does by your intent. You set it all in motion. You set it, the parameters, but that's your work in creation. But he shifted now into your work in preservation. How does this world continue to function as it does? Again, these aren't. this isn't a meteorologist talking. This isn't a climatologist or a geologist or you know, whatever. This is someone observing. God, you bring rain and plants grow and animals are fed and people are taken care of. I mean, you keep moving down the high mountains for goats, the rocks are refuge for rock badgers. You didn't just make it, God, and step away from it. You're not the God that some of our forefathers envisioned as a deist who simply creates this and like a top sets it to spinning and then walks away from it. You're, You're intimately involved in the routine of your creation, the preservation of it, and then Keep moving down, you know, verse 20, you make, you make moon, verse 19, you make the sun, you make day and night, darkness and night, verse 20, verse 21, lions seeking their food, sun rises, how do they function? Verse 23, man, now look at verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom, you've made them all, the earth is full of your creatures. And again, for time's sake, you can read all the way down um, and you get to the end, this God who is not only creating, this God who is renewing, this God who is forever, he looks, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, you still have control. You can do whatever you will, whatever you want. Um, bless, bless the Lord, all my soul. Praise the Lord. Again, I kind of sped through them, but you can read it. Through God's providence, we see God being actively involved in his creation at each moment. He's the one who speaks it into existence in Genesis 1. He's, he doesn't abandon his creation after he makes it. He sustains it. He fuels it. And so we would think of God's providence this way. He causes to continue what has already been called into existence, and He does it by sustaining it, that's preservation, by working in and through it, that's concurrence, and by directing it towards purposes, that's government. So in a sense, those three classic theological themes of preservation, concurrence, and government are all seen in one psalm. And that's why I read you Psalm 104. All right, let's go back to this for a moment. That first verse that we read, Romans eleven thirty six. Let's look at those three phrases. And that'll guide our, the rest of our thoughts here today. For from Him, from Him. This is the idea of preservation, defined as God upholds and sustains all things. This is a term to say that He keeps existed things existing. You know, it's interesting, the Bible actually teaches not only did God make it, but if God removed His hand from it, it would cease to be. It would come undone. He's the preserver. He's the 
He's the sustainer of everything that is. He's working in all things at all times. He causes things to maintain the properties with which He created them. He preserves water in such a way that it keeps being water. He causes grass to act like grass. He causes oxygen to work like oxygen. This is the preservation of God. We don't think of this as God continuously making a new creation. We don't wake up into a new world every day. Um, it's God preserving what is already there. God's keeping it together. Look at some verses that talk about this. Colossians, uh, this, sorry, this was a typo. This is Colossians 1.15, not 17. That's funny, I don't know if any of you noticed last week. If you were here on Sunday night, we addressed it, but uh, of course a lot of folks weren't. Not this, this week, but the week before, I left a, just a sticky note on Karen's desk. Here's the verse to put on the cover, and um, it was Isaiah... I think Isaiah 52 something, but it was about the goodness of God, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if she didn't catch my handwriting. She put Isaiah 42, and it was a whole totally different message. It had nothing to do with anything we were talking about today, taken out of context, but it ended with the words, and therefore there is no hope. I thought, that's just what we want to give everybody on Sunday morning. Huge difference between Isaiah 52 here and Isaiah 42 here. They say very different things. All right, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, that's Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And catch this phrase in verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Wait, that's, that goes beyond creation. That's a statement that through the sovereign king, Everything works. It functions. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us through the Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. All right? How, what's the clearest, best understanding we can ever get of who God is? Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises to Israel. He's the fulfillment of all the types that we see in the Old Testament. He is the perfect high priest. He is the ruling and reigning king. He is the great and true prophet. He is the perfect depiction of and the final revelation of God. And verse 2 of Hebrews 1 says that He's the one that created. Now get to verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by word of His power. Again, so the implications in Hebrews 1... And Colossians 1 is not the inattention to the world or inactivity of God or the, I don't know, the detachment. It's the exact opposite. It's the involvement of God in the world on a, on a regular basis. Um, so listen to the end of that. Verse 3, He upholds the universe by word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much as superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What do we have a picture of? Christ comes into the world and announces that the kingdom of God is here. When Christ is crucified and raised and then ascended, where does He go? He goes to the throne and He sits in the world as His footstool and He reigns. And so the picture we have is God sent His Son into the world to bring in about His kingdom. He brings about His kingdom by conquering our spiritual enemy, Satan, defeating death, the judgment of our sins, defeating sin and its consequence, death, being raised to new life, ascending to His proper place where He now rules and exerts daily authority, constant authority, active authority until the time in which He comes back in authority, not as a suffering servant, but as a ruling and reigning king for all the world to bow before Him. So 
authority, active acts of authority. So both the verses that we uh, read indicate that if Christ were to cease his continuing activity of sustaining, what would happen? For those verses, things would cease to exist. So you can write this down in those two blanks. Without Christ, nothing would come into existence. That's the doctrine of what? Creation. If there's, without Christ, it doesn't happen. Through Him were all things made that were made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Without Christ, nothing would continue to exist. That is the doctrine of preservation. Creation and preservation, both are biblical doctrines. You may remember one of Job's friends. I mean, they were more right than they were wrong, but they were limited like we are. They couldn't see the hand of God doing things that they couldn't understand. And so they tried to give the best counsel they could. And again, more often than not, they were right in their theological statements. Um, Elihu, one of Job's friends, said this in Job 34, 14. If he, God, should take back his spirit to himself and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Elihu said in Job 34, if God withdraws, it's over. The worst judgment of God will be his total withdrawal. That's, that's preservation. Okay, I've spent too much time on that. Okay, so that's number one, God preserves. Questions on that, preservation? Okay, it gets harder. The next one is, this is the next one is where rubber really starts to meet the road. Okay, and through him. Now let's talk about concurrence. Concurrence is the doctrine that teaches us God works in and through all things. How does God work in and through all things, particularly the actions of His creatures, the actions of His creation? So again, I think mentally, and, and you, know, you tell me if this is true for you, mentally, I think it's easier for us to comprehend God acting apart from us when we're not involved in the equation. You know, we can imagine, okay, I can, I can agree, I can understand, God, you created everything. You had no one to oppose you. And until the fall in chapter 3 of, of Genesis, you had no one messing up what you had made. But now it's much more complicated because now we're talking about a doctrine that says God accomplishes all of His purposes, no one can thwart Him, God does whatever He wills, God is uh, accomplishing everything according to the purpose of His will, but you throw into that mix, you got seven billion sinful people and all the creatures besides, how does it work now? Um, and I think a lot of people, wittingly or unwittingly, have a theology that elevates man either to the level of God, sometimes beyond God, or at least to the point where they're threatening God. Um, I don't intend this to be quite the jab that it seems, but I, there, there's a pastor local, and I know he, he always signs off on his emails, God is always trying to such and such. God doesn't try. He does not try. I mean, that's not consistent with anything Scripture says. You, you know, you could never say, I know God is trying to do this in your life, but you just won't let Him. God doesn't work that way. He just doesn't work that way. You can't stop His purposes. You cannot. But at the same time, and this is where we have to really stretch our thinking. God is working alongside of and through and with our actions. That's what concurrence is. So at the same time humans are acting, which we are, and we're acting with some level of autonomy, we are making choices, we're making responsible choices. In other words, I don't mean you're making good choices like telling your teenager, make responsible choices. I'm talking about we're making choices we're responsible for. 
while this is happening, God is also working. We are creatures with a will of our own, a, a stubborn will. But while we're making choices, I mean, this sounds like a philosophy class, the causal power we exert is actually secondary. God is always primary. So in other words, think of the Joseph story. The causal actions. Why, how did Joseph end up in Egypt? Because his brother sold him into slavery, and then those people sold him into a different group of people into slavery, and they took him to Egypt. That's causal. They did it. They chose it. We can trace it back. How did Joseph get from Jacob's house to Pharaoh's house? We can say, this happened, and this happened, this happened, this happened. Well, who's responsible? Well, these decisions were made here, and Joseph had to wear that jacket out there and show everybody, and he had to you know, ask these questions that got everybody mad. You know, we could trace all those down. Those are causal. You know, there's a cause and effect to those. Secondary. What was primary? God, in times past, had determined that the means He would rescue His own people and the nations would be through the actions of Joseph that He would elevate in Potiphar's house. So again, does that make sense? Primary, secondary. Here's the thing. From our perspective, particularly if you're not a believer or you're not a mature believer, you, know, you maybe could just be new to the faith, but if you're not a believer at all, from your perspective, the only cause looks like yours, right? I mean, it wouldn't look like anything else. Why am I in this situation? Because I did it. Because, you know, and, and here's a mistake people make. I never remember this. I've used this as an illustration far too often. Um, a lady in my church called me years ago and said, um, my daughter, she's, she's at Martin County Jail. She got arrested tonight uh, for DUI. She's in Martin County Jail. But I know this was God's will for her life. Okay, this is a real check on, on personal theology here. I mean, I could say, because I believe in sovereignty, I believe in providence, God can take what was meant for evil and turn it for good, because He's that kind of God. And God may be working in her, in her life to bring her to a point of sobriety at some point through this. But we should never say, well, you know, it, it was God's will for me to drink too much. It was God's will for me to drink too much and get behind the wheel of a car and then go driving it, so much so that I'm driving erratically and I get pulled over by police. You, you see what I'm saying? We're not justifying sinful actions by saying, well, that was God's will. Can God work that for His purposes? Sure, He's bigger than our sin. But... Why are you sitting in jail tonight? Because of God? No, because you committed a crime. Because you did something foolish and selfish that would har potentially harm you and someone else. So, you know, understand there is both. So when we talk about concurrence, we're talking about God's providence stands over and above our actions. So concurrence, if you're looking for a definition, it basically means that God cooperates with created things in every action. So again, when we talk about primary and secondary, the divine cause of every event for us happens as an invisible behind-the-scenes cause. That's what we would call primary. But for the persons doing the actions, the secondary causes, those people, whether it's, why does my dog do what my dog does? Because that's what dogs do. But he doesn't understand, or she doesn't understand, even their decisions. I'm still primary. You're doing this, but you're doing this in the in the parameters that I allow it to be done, um, in, the, in the calls I have. So, so primary is God. Secondary is what we see. God is invisible. Let me give you some examples here just real quick, and I'm going to have to fly through these, and we may only get to here tonight, but that's okay. Like I said, i got next week too. So, Let me give you some examples. These are not in your notes. You can write these down. 
All right, the examples of concurrence. There are some events that we would say are fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature. Um, consider Job 37, 6 through 13. To the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs, remain in their dens. From the chamber comes a whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. But the breath of God, ice is given. From the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter with lightning, etc. And he describes you know, lightning and clouds and ice and snow. If, if an unbeliever in the 21st century who knows meteorology reads that, he says, that's not how rain happens. Here's how rain happens. That's not how snowfall happens. That's not why lightning comes. Lightning comes because of these events happening. And we would say, yeah, those are happening. Who is orchestrating those? Who set those things in motion? For us, we would say, the God who creates and preserves is at work in inanimate things. But, you know, again, you could give a natural explanation to those things. Why does grass grow? Um, why is there flooding? Why is there snowfall? But from a Christian perspective, we say this is all part of God's design and God is orchestrating these things. Or even think about an animal life. So here's one from Psalm 104, which I read a little while ago. Um, you give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. It's talking about God. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide their face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die. What was he saying? Okay, if there's not much food, if there's famine, the animals are going to die. They're going to search for food. They're not going to find it. Well, obviously they're working, searching for food, but God's working. Or what about things that we would consider just random um, chance? This just happens. It's, it's nobody, it's nothing. No one controls it. Bible says that that's not true. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What is Proverbs 16.33 saying? He's not saying that, you know, every time you're sitting with the family and you're playing Monopoly and you roll the dice, it was God's intent that you got two sixes. God gave you those two sixes and He gave your kid, you know, a two and landed on Park Place. That's, that's not the point. The point is saying God doesn't operate in chance, in circumstance. God is working those things. Um, here's one for the times in which we live. How about the affairs of nations? God is sovereign over the things that we see happening in the world today. He's, these things are not out of His control. You've heard me say things like, it looks like we live in a world that's spinning. And spinning. Once again, I hope you have enjoyed hearing our pastor teach on God's providence. Uh, this was week seven of our systematic theology course, our open class. Uh, next week, Paul and I will be back uh, talking about an issue that deals with Calvary's life. And so we hope you'll tune in and hear then. And remember, Calvary is here for God, for Dothan, and for the world.